this week on the Backtable Podcast. It's very interesting. When you use Lipidol, you inject the Lipidol. You see the Lipidol stays where you inject. It's not going to expand everywhere. The first time you do that, you are scared. You think that maybe my treatment stays there, but actually it doesn't matter where you inject. What we recommend is to go to the center of the lesion if you want to, to make sure that it distributes everywhere. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. First, a brief word from our sponsors. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. This is Michael Barraza as your host today, and I'm honored to welcome Dr. Jafar Gulzarian to the podcast to talk with us today on the intraarterial and percutaneous treatment of giant hepatic hemangiomas. Dr. Gulzarian, thank you for joining us, or I should say coming back. Hi, Mike. It's a pleasure and honor to be back. You know, I enjoyed really very much the first podcast we had together, I, and um, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, the first one was a good one. We talked about genicular artery embolization, and that was a, a really popular one we got a lot of good feedback from. And uh, it's actually one that, you know, I used a lot in my own practice and starting to introduce that. Before we get started, you know, a lot of our listeners are students and trainees, and you guys have a really strong IR program at University of Minnesota. And I was hoping you could begin by telling our listeners, you know, a little bit about the program and, and what the training is like there. Yeah. As you know, uh, University of Minnesota, way before me, was one of the two main centers of training in IR. Amplatz, Kurt Amplatz was from here. So uh, I am actually feeling big shoes, which is because I am <laughs> the, um, I have the endowed Amplatz chair, uh, yeah, so it was a, the place where Amplas and Castaneda and Dave Hunter lived and worked and, you know, educated the whole generation of IR. And we're lucky we have a very good group of a different level of training. The young with a lot of excitement and more senior like me with maybe less excitement, but some experience. But altogether, we have really a very comprehensive program. We cover almost everything in IR and we have two IR residents every year and some spots for ESIR training. And so it's very, very competitive, but really a good program. You know, people are very nice, try to understand the dynamics of, you know, new trainings and the needs of fellows. And, and you know, Minnesota nice, you know, those. Uh, th this is one of the uh, strengths of this program, I think. I think it's a great program. We, we have really great group of faculty and and amazing uh, candidates. Yeah, and just, you know, from following the literature and the educational opportunities you and your colleagues have put out, it, it seems like in addition to kind of the, the bread and butter IR, you guys are doing a lot of more cutting edge interventions in our specialty. That, that's true. We, uh, 
being involved with guests and other uh, major meetings, we have been really very interested and in contact with new uh, developments, especially in embolotherapy. And we were lucky that people in our team are interested to, you know, look into some new um, techniques. And we have had a lot of FDA-approved IDE on almost every new technique that is coming out. And hopefully we can uh, we can continue to add some value. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to work with the group of physicians we have here. And, and we have amazing techs and nurses as well. It's really an, a P and a good group of PAs. It's really good, fun, fun department. You actually answered something that I've been struggling with for a long time. I've I've never really known if it was guest or jest. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah, you're right. It's global. You're right. You know, most European call it jest, but uh, yeah, it's a good question. It's guest, global embolization, symposium and therapy. Tell us just a little bit about guest. So uh, Mark Sapoval, uh, myself, and Ziv Haskell, we started guest in 2007. That was at the time where the hottest thing in embolization was uh, fibroid. And uh, 10 or 15 years later, we went from like a program where we had 11 sponsors to a program where 32, 33 sponsors are coming. We had barely uh, a glue and onyx. Now this year, as you have seen probably, we have seven, eight different companies coming with different liquids. We had only a platter at that time as a plug. Now we have like, I don't know how many plugs, seven, eight, nine. At the time, uh, it was a challenge to start this and there was not enough support from industry, but boy, support from uh, participants and IRs was so overwhelming. And, and, and we are very lucky because the program stays really very popular and we have a scientific committee and course directors. Gary Siskin is amazing and the amount of work he puts in this. Jim Spies, Cameron Arar, he's uh, with Lewandowski. They are both working very hard on the uh, the uh, oncology program. And then we have, of course, Dr. Sone from Japan and Dr. Uh, Gert Malo. These are the course directors. And then we have a lot of good friends from uh, IR across the world. So it's, it, became the, it became a very popular meeting. Uh, Mostly, uh, one of the areas that is really interesting, I guess, is the uh, the master classes where we demonstrate different materials coming to the market and materials that are available. What are the technical tips and tricks? And that has been really a highlight of the meeting. The educational content that's come from it has been superb. I really got a lot of value out of thank you the different sessions and the other stuff you had on prostatic artery embolization. I actually learned a lot of it from guests. Thank you. We can't do it without participants and support of you guys. Uh, same thing, uh, I tell you, I've learned so much from Backtable podcast. <laughs> you know, we are so complimentary to things that everybody tries to bring on uh, the table. And it, it has been a good experience. And uh, we continue, you know, we, we do a lot of guest summits now, uh, which are webinars that are very popular. Uh, and because they are free and they are offered internationally, very often over a thousand participants coming just to a, a Saturday webinar. I was making a joke at one of these webinars was that the uh, a Saturday uh, in December uh, during the World Cup, soccer World Cup. And I say, guys, what the heck are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> you should be watching World Cup finals. Or, but no, I, uh, we are very blessed with that. And then we have also, as you know, um, now a guest MSK 
this is a two, three days now every year in Paris. We did the first one in 2023, January. The next one would be in January 24, still in Paris. That has been also very well, well received by, by IR across the board. So it sounds great. Let's talk about hemangiomas. How and when did you start treating these? So uh, like all of us, we have been treating this for years and very frustrated because you go and you embolize, you do the chemo embol the way you always do and it's barely changing or you get some infarct and, infarct and then, uh, then patient symptoms come back. You know, I remember one of the hardest patients we had, I had to go after embolization, I had to go to every hepatic vein, put a catheter there for the surgeon to know when they go to operate to know where they have to stop because that's not an easy surgery. So in uh, 2015 or 16, a, a friend of mine from Tehran, from Iran, Dr. Aklagpur, sent me a, a paper with his results of intra-arterial taste but using bleomycin and lipido. And I watched that, I was so amazed, surprised, and so I helped look at the cases, uh, edit the paper, and just published at CVIR. Then we looked at the literature. Literature Actually, you know, this was a start in China, the intra-arterial treatment of those hemangiomas with bleomycin. And there is, believe it or not, Michael, there are probably 2,000 cases already reported for that. And the result was very good, uh, very interesting. And then while I was doing that, another friend of mine who actually came to Iowa when I was in Iowa for three months to observe, he's at the University of Tehran. He was thinking that there, there was a, a paper in CVIR, I think it was in 2018, talking that giant hemangiomas are not hemangiomas. They are low-grade malformation, venous malformation. So he thought that, you know, how, how do I treat the venous malformation? I inject bleomycin. Let me try to do that. But instead of doing intra-arterial, he decided to inject percutaneously. And they did five cases, was published in JVIR, and then they continued to publish this in uh, radiology. And I look at their data, it was amazing. So I talked to them, worked with them, and then started to do some here at the university. And we were amazed to see how it works. One of those things that you, you look at and you say, boy, these guys have changed the course of a disease by doing these techniques. So that actually makes a lot of sense for people who are treating vascular and lymphatic malformations. I mean, direct injection of leomycin is, is one of the mainstays of that therapy. Of course, it makes perfect sense it would work for these. Absolutely. And, and you know, what, what is uh, sometimes difficult for us in Western countries is that a lot of those papers, uh, when they come to the journal, they don't get a lot of in, uh, attention just because, you know, you don't know the authors, even though a lot of journals, they do a, a blind review, but then uh, also the English writing is not perfect. So I think the fact that I was involved with the writing of that, and then when when it was published at CVIR, CVIR they asked Tiago Bilim and Otto and myself to write an editorial on that, and the editorial was also very well received. And, and you know, after that, really, when you look back, I think, I think there is a... Uh, a time before those papers. Yeah, these papers were published in uh, China a lot, the intra-arterial. But it had to come to the Western media before suddenly things become more popularized. Okay. So we see hemangiomas in the liver all the time, and we blow them off, and we don't do anything with them. Which are the ones that need treatment? 
great question, Michael. Usually, um, I would say two types of hemangiomas that need treatment. One that have is causing pain. Those hemangiomas need to be treated, and they are, usually they are larger one. And then uh, some of them also uh, may be uh, responsible of compression of structures such as portal uh, vein or other st- vascular structure or even bile duct. So those are, I would say, the major patients that need the treatment. There have been some cases of bleeding on those type of things, but that's not really the major indications. So it's not like an angiomyolipoma when it gets above, you know, say four centimeters, you plan to treat it above a certain size that the risk of rupture is just not quite the same. It's more symptomatic and due to compression, as you said, and secondary effects related to the mass. Absolutely. It's, uh, sometimes also, I have to tell, they are not symptomatic, but patients feel that really a huge mass is there. They don't have pain, but it affects their, well, there are some sort of symptoms. It affects their life in a way they, they can lay, you know, on their right side or, you know, they can do a lot of sports. And so I would say those kind of lesions also um, need to be treated. Yeah. It's like bulk symptoms from fibroids, you know, it's not, exactly. it's not dangerous in and of itself, but I mean, we've all had fibroid patients who may not necessarily have the standard bulk symptoms, but like, I feel a mass and that, you know, there's a psychological effect there. And absolutely. Yes. Okay. So the other issue with hemangiomas that I've seen is that when they get above a certain size, they don't necessarily look like hemangiomas. They just look like big liver masses. And so I'm curious, you know, what's the level of confidence that you need in from an imaging standpoint to proceed with treating one of these? Yes, that's a good question. Very often, these are younger patients. Most of our patients have been women that have this lesion. They think that you have to, when they are larger, there are still a lot of specific, you know, diagnostic with MR, where MR can really uh, distinguish that. When you look at the MR aspect and also the uh, patient's profile, usually it's easier to make the diagnostic of giant hemangioma. There have been some cases where the treatment, the, uh, the diagnostic is complex, but thanks God we didn't have that uh, so far. All right. Okay. Well, you began to answer my next question in, in the patient profile. The, the ones that you're treating, are, is there a certain age range? Yeah. Most, most of them, I would say, are Patient between 30 to 50 years old, uh, most of them are women, but you can see it in younger patient and older patient, depends on you know how, how long they, were, have, they have been uh, really living with that. Because when you look at the surgical alternative, there's such, such a big difference that some of those patients really, rightly so, didn't want to touch it. Yeah. Now, I'm not quite as familiar with the natural history of these. So let's say you've got a patient with uh, a fairly large hemangioma, but the symptoms are, you know, they're manageable. Will these ever regress on their own, or is is this something that's going to persist and perhaps grow? There have been some cases that show that hemangiomas can uh, regress, but the majority they just or stay stable or they keep growing. And when they grow and become symptomatic, it becomes very often so bothersome that even a complex surgery, they 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 finally say, you know what, we are sick of it, this ha- something has to happen. But in general, a lot of them stay stable, you know, they don't change in size. So those that are actually growing and causing symptoms are the ones that you need to pay attention to. Now, the, the patients that are that are referred to you for management of these, are, where are they coming from? Is this, you know, the hepatobiliary surgeons, the hepatologists? 
Yeah, right now we had to we had to talk about that with our surgeons locally, and yeah, most of the times our hepatobiliary surgeon and a few patients that have uh, seen our papers or have through an interventional radiologist have heard about this, and I have had patients contacting us from New York, from other states, just and sometimes I tell them, you know, guys, you don't need to come to Minneapolis for that. That's easy, just. Tell me where, where you want to go, and I will call the IR team there, and they can do it. It's really an easy technique. But yeah, most of the patients are all self-referred or from the um, hepatobiliary surgeons. You say it's an easy technique, but it's a technique that I don't think is in widespread use. You know, not a lot of people are familiar with your treatment algorithm. In fact, you know, you see on SIR Connect probably once a year, someone will post a case asking for help treating a hemangioma and, you know, we'll be talking about people that are ablating them, you know, doing routine, you know, conventional or debtase. And hopefully this can help get the word out of an effective treatment option. Now, are there other treatment options aside from surgery and percutaneous and intraarterial therapy? Are there any systemic therapies that have shown any efficacy in treating these? Yeah, some some uh, systemic therapy have been uh, described and uh, have been used. I don't know exactly the percentage of success with those. It still remains a, a treatment that I really think that with the result we have with percutaneous or intravascular, the improvement is so overwhelming that I, I really don't think anything else should be done. Of course, also we have seen, as you said, ablation. Some some patients have been treated by cryoablation. Some have been treated by ablation by microwave. And uh, depend on the size. But when you look at those 14, 15 centimeter lesions, you know, uh, I think nothing can compete this uh, intravascular or, or mostly percutaneous technique. So do you see these patients in clinic first? Yes. Okay. I see them in clinic. I talk to them about the risk and benefits. And uh, sometimes uh, we, I inform them that we may need to do more than once uh, injection. And they just ask doctor when, <laughs> because they, they just want to go go and do it as soon as possible. Well, it's an interesting concept for treating a lesion like this that is one, not usually not inherently dangerous, you know, there's not a big risk of rupture, but two, it's not a cosmetic issue. You know, when I look at the vascular and lymphatic malformation patients I'm treating, you know, it's primarily cosmetic and, and sometimes, and, you know, the ones that are in you know, the head and neck area can be some other risks associated with that. But for a lesion like this in the liver, where we're mainly treating the symptoms, how do you establish the goals of your treatment? What are you hoping to achieve? And how do you know when you've gotten enough? It's a very good question. So one thing is very important to the physicians that are doing that. Uh, you need to explain to the patient that the uh, tumor will take some time to shrink. So what I have seen, even in my group, is that a lot of physicians, they look at the result at one month and they don't do a measurement of the volume, but they look at the largest diameter and say, ah, oh, there has been not much changes. So they, they are excited, bring the patient back and do another one. And I would say 95% of those patients don't need a second injection. Unless you, for I had a case where I couldn't, when I was injecting majority of my contrast when I was checking, was going directly to a hepatic vein. So I didn't inject the amount of dose I needed. So those patients, you may have to bring them. But if you give the right dose and 
just need to be patient. You need to tell today your patient that it may take up to six months where we can start to see a significant change in the size. The symptoms very often, they improve within the first months and the patients see the difference, but the volume will change with time. So uh, really the goal of this treatment is to uh, remove the symptoms and the risk of compressions of organs. So sometimes if the compression and the bulk symptom is the problem, you may want to bring the patient back and do another dose within the next month or two, uh, just because if there is some symptomatic compression. But other than that, I would say, do one treatment, let the patient relax, see the patient with uh, imaging. I always see the patient at one month, three months, and six months, but the imaging that matters for me is at six months. Most of these patients, they want to look at their MRI at one month and three months to see the shrinkage that I, at the beginning, I was doing that also for all patients because it's very amazing to see the difference in the volume. But, but yeah, wait six months. The expectation is that by six months, you will see a significant change in the volume and uh, resolution of the symptoms. Wow. Let's talk about treatment planning. Do you do both intra-arterial and direct injection for all of the lesions, or is it a combination? Is it different for each patient? Well, if the access percutaneously is easy, which most of them are, I would prefer to do percutaneous injection now. And I could never believe that one day I would prefer percutaneous over intravascular. <laughs> so that's the first thing. The only thing that I, I would say is that a lot of insurances, they don't... So there is a way to ask, and I think you need to talk about the sclerotherapy of liver hemangioma, I think, to get a good approval. But if they don't approve it for percutaneous, you just do a chemoembolization, and that is approved. So. If we do chemoembolization by blomycin is when the, uh, the insurance rejects the uh, percutaneous approach for reimbursement. So, but, but I would say if you have a symptomatic lesion that is difficult to reach or, or you need to do CT guided or you can do um, intravascular, but most of the patients right now we do are percutaneous. So for the percutaneous lesion, the percutaneous treatments, are you doing most of them with ultrasound or CT guidance? Most of them with ultrasound, but if you, even sometimes you see that the size is big, sometimes in the ultrasound, with the ultrasound is difficult to, to evaluate where you want to inject. And so I recently talked to Dr. Rockney, who actually invented the technique, yeah, he's moving more and more towards CT guided for those patients. So you just think that it's much, much easier to position the needle. We, we majority of our patients are still ultrasound guided. Okay. Are you doing this under local anesthesia, moderate sedation, or general anesthesia? I would say you don't even need moderate sedation, but as you know, in the US, most patients prefer moderate sedation, but you can definitely do it with, with local uh, anesthesia. Uh, so another question regarding treatment planning, you know, I know that when I'm treating vascular lymphatic malformations, I have to, to order the bleomycin dosage before the treatment. How are you determining what dose to use for, for each lesion? That's a very good question too. 
So I actually uh, looked at what those other groups have done. They have started to do 30, 45, and 60 uh, units uh, of leomycin. But it seems more and more that when you are dealing with a larger than 10 centimeter hemangioma, it's better to go directly to 60 units. And so for me, the majority of my patients are larger and I go directly to 60 units. And you can, very often, that's the only thing you need to do. You don't need to bring the patient back and do another one. But you can still do more if you need to. And so when you're treating these large lesions and they start to look more heterogeneous the larger they get and they have different components on imaging, where are you targeting needle placement and injection? Is it one spot or are you targeting several areas? Is it important to hit the, the, the periphery? Where are you putting the bleomycin? At the beginning, we thought that we go and puncture to the center and then we reposition the needle and go somewhere else. And especially when you use lipidol, it's very interesting. When you use lipidol, you inject the lipidol. You see the lipidol stays where you inject. It's not going to expand everywhere. The first time you do that, you are scared. You think that maybe my treatment stays there, but actually, it actually doesn't matter where you inject. What we recommend is to go to the center of the lesion if you want to, to make sure that it distributes everywhere. And uh, by the way, the group, the groups in the University of Tehran, they don't inject the lipidol anymore. They just directly puncture a 22 gauge needle into the center. They do an injection to see if there is no major portal vein or hepatic vein opacification. And then they inject the, um, the bleomycin and they are done. <laughs> that's as easy as it it it's it's it is. Yeah. So do you recommend injecting contrast through your needle? Absolutely. So you start with the injection of the contrast with the twenty two gauge needle. Yeah, you can you can uh, inject uh, slowly, and the goal really is to see if you are in the portal vein or a bile duct or something. Sometimes that can happen, and actually. Even if you start to inject and you modify your position and you start to see that there is still some classification hepatic vein, you can still go ahead and, uh, and treat. The majority of that pleomycin will stay in the tumor. And if some go systemic, the dose is not huge to, have a, to cause any significant problem. So you typically do one needle and you go to the center, inject contrast, and then do your treatment. Yes. So for your treatment, what are you mixing the bleomycin with? So uh, you just take the same amount of... Uh, so if you, if you want to use uh, lipidol, you take 10 cc of lipidol and 10 cc of diluted uh, bleomycin with, or distilled water or saline. And so you have a, a syringe of 20 cc that you mix it and then you, you inject it. Or what I do right now is just the, uh, a 10 cc... Uh, solution of bleomycin into a 10cc syringe, and that's all that I used. Great. Does it come diluted, or do you have to add the water? I asked uh, to send it diluted to a 10cc. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. It's, that's what I'm doing as well, is, is having them prepared for me. Not for this. Okay. For your peripheral cases. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you've done the injection, remove the needle, and then they just stay for a few hours and go home? Yes. Do they experience anything like a post-embolization syndrome? I, I realize this isn't a traditional embolization, but I'm curious if they get any, any, any symptoms usually after the treatment. The literature report uh, was talking about some uh, abdominal pain. That abdominal pain sometimes can, can be minor abdominal pain and 
a lot of patients may feel that. So we explain to the patient that you may have abdominal pain and we give them painkiller. The other thing that they may have is about 14% of the patients that have been reported to have nausea. And most of those patients is just few few hours and they, they just do well. Some, some brand of glomycin may cause hyperpigmentation. You may have seen that also in peripheral uh, embolization, so in venous malformation. And that's also not significant, but when you compare it to the scheme of the disease, the, the importance of the disease is not a huge problem, but hypo, hyperpigmentation can, uh, can happen. The other thing also, as you know, uh, yeah, uh, you need to always go through a normal liver uh, when you get to the hemangioma because the risk of bleeding uh, if you go directly to the hemangioma is higher than other lesions. So there, there has been two cases of bleeding, periapatic bleeding, because of the fact that they directly puncture the hemangioma. So let's talk then about the smaller percentage of patients in whom you're doing an intraarterial therapy. How is it different from a routine chemoembolization for HCC? It's not that different. The only difference is that you don't necessarily want to go super selective in this one because the huge CD, the arteries are you, you have when you do an HCC, a very large HCC, how it looks like. You just, you just go and inject it into the artery. In intraarterial, I usually mix it with lipido, the, the same mixture that I explained, and you just give the whole dose and um, in a, in a non-selective manner. So you, I don't give low bar unless you have to do low bar, but sometimes let's say you have a, a segment two and three large hemangioma, but segment four, you can, you can save it. So you just go to those area. But if you go even uh, the whole lo left lobe is fine, as long as you, uh, you make sure that you don't have those uh, smaller collateral that goes outside the liver, which is not a huge deal. Is there much of an embolic effect of the bleomycin mixture when you're injecting these hemangiomas? I mean, they don't really act much like a hepatocellular carcinoma, you know, in, in terms of the angiogram. I'm, I'm curious uh, what the actual embolization is like. Yeah, you're right. There, there is, the bleomycin doesn't have an embolic effect, but uh, lipidal has some. So in intravascular, we will use that. And by the way, uh, there are studies that showed uh, the usage of intravascular bleomycin they don't necessarily come in to do embolization after that. So you just inject the solution and you get out. Now, uh, some, some people, they do still some particle embolization. And uh, one of my partners actually has done that and, and had good result. But I think um, the, the, uh, those papers don't report the need of doing an extra particle embolization. Okay. Now, when you're doing the intraarterial treatment, you know, you're not using particles. Do they get much post-embolization syndrome? Yeah, the same, say the, a little bit more than the direct puncture. You know, they get you know, some, some um, post-embolization syndrome uh, within the next three days. And, but most of them very well, tolerated very well. They, it's not as bad as the C-taste patients. Right. So these are large tumors. And as you said, uh, it's not infrequent to have to perform more than one treatment on these patients. How and when do you decide if a patient is going to need another treatment? And how do you time that relative to the initial therapy? When the patient uh, symptoms don't improve significantly, or when you see that the, um, the shrinkage is not to your liking, because it is actually shrinking significantly when you use that. 
And that happens, as I mentioned, when you don't use the right dose, when you inject like 30 units in a very large hemangioma, those patients, you need to bring them back. So as I mentioned, I, one of my patients recently had a position where when I was injecting, I thought that the majority of solution was going to the hepatic vein. So I reduced the dose and, and so I will bring this patient back because the patient's symptoms improvement was not as expected. They usually the symptoms go away. They are the happiest patient ever after that. So if you, if you see that the patients are, you know, some, sometimes the patient don't know the expectation. They really need to have no symptoms anymore. So do you get your first imaging at three months or six months after the treatment? To be honest, I take them at one month and then uh, when the patient can afford it, I would take it as three months and six months because of my curiosity of trying to see and measure and have those show in images in conferences and everything. But I tell them that it's their choice. The real imaging that matters is that six months, especially if you see the patient symptomatically getting better. The patient at one month uh, say, oh, you know, I don't have a very significant improvement. I would do an imaging at three months, at three months. And then, then we decide if you need to do more or we, or we are satisfied and, and then we just continue uh, follow up. So what happens after six months? Do they continue to regress or do you find yourself having to treat them a year or two later? No, um, not only our patient, but also I checked with the other groups. None of these patients come back for new treatment. Wow. So That's fantastic. Maybe they, yeah, maybe in 20 years they'll have a new hemangiomas and then you would have to treat them. But one of my patients actually is a patient we treated in 2014 where surgery, they, the patient had to have a surgery and uh, nine years later came back with new, uh, you know, the, the problem is that there is also like other, other lesion, the margin, you can't clear the margin 100% when you do surgery. So those hemangiomas may come back. And so that, that's something that actually is a little bit harder to treat, but at least from uh, those that have been treated and we have to, not, none of them come back. That's fantastic. This sounds like a very gratifying procedure because as you know, a lot of the work that we do in the liver for tumors, you know, these are patients that we don't often cure. We see them and, you know, we keep treating them and, and eventually the, the disease often wins, HCC or metastases. And it's a really great opportunity anytime we get to treat somebody like this where, you know, we can treat them and that's it. You know, it's like an angiomyelipoma yeah. or renal cell uh, or fibroid, you know, and, uh, and it's always really gratifying to be able to treat some some patients for pain. It's one of my favorite things that we do. Absolutely. This, I mean, this sounds like a fantastic treatment option. I, I look forward to bringing this up to my own hepatobiliary surgeons. That's really about all I have. Is, is there anything else about this or, or anything else that you wanted to cover that I, I didn't get to? One thing that you know, sometimes this patient at very high dose, they may uh, get pulmonary fibrosis, but not at the dose we are using. And then uh, there has been um, a case of liver uh, liver abscess reported, and some of them may have allergic reaction to some brand of bleomycin, but in general, it's very well tolerated. The only thing else I would say is really it's important to discuss to the surgeon because the surgeons who are actually strong surgeon who go after, uh, who actually decide to go and treat those hemangioma, they know how difficult it is to treat that. And the post-surgical complications are so bothersome, as you know, from bile leak and 
you know, whatever you can imagine. And, and removing a liver, the part of the liver is not an easy surgery anyways. So I think it is very important to, and, and I have some slides I can share with you. I'm sure there are others online. I think you can go to guests or other meetings. You can find the slides. Show them the difference, the difference between before the treatment and at six months, the shrinkage. Some of them actually disappeared almost totally. So it's, it's important when they see that and they, everything it takes you is a 10 minute procedure. I think, um, they, they would be your, your biggest supporter. Oh, to yeah. Do that. And, and relatively speaking, it's a, a low risk procedure. Absolutely. It's su such a, as you say, it's a very gratifying procedure. It's one of some of those that you really enjoy doing it. You know, when you do fibro, it's the same because most of our fibroid patient symptoms disappear, but they have some alternative. For this one, there's really no other right. alternative. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Golzarian, thank you for sharing your time and your expertise with us. And I look forward to having you back. Thank you so much, Michael. I really enjoy what you guys are doing. Congrats, really. Uh, Backtable became uh, an educational platform that everybody uses and at any level. And I tell you, each time I have a few minutes, I come and listen to some of your podcasts. You Great. Great work, and again, congratulations for what you have done. Well, thank you. In the short period we of are, time, we're nothing without supporters and experts like you to, to share their expertise. So we're grateful. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Good seeing you guys. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louie Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 